Hello, data people. Welcome. This is Jared Polifka. Thanks for being here for another episode, and thank you for listening. We have an incredible guest on the show today. His name is Andreas Mueller. Andreas is a passionate, passionate fellow. <laughs> um, I guess I would describe Andreas in a couple words as passionate about democratizing access to machine learning. What that means is he, it's his mission to create open tools that lower the barrier for entry to machine learning applications. Andreas is a very talented man. He's got a doctorate in computer vision from the University of Bonn. He's currently a lecturer at the Data Science Institute at Columbia University, and he authored the book Introduction to Machine Learning with Python, which was published by O'Reilly. Now, you might be familiar with Andreas because he is a globetrotter. He runs around the country and around the world speaking at data science and machine learning conferences. Andreas is one of the core developers of the Scikit-Learn machine learning library. He's been co-maintaining Scikit-Learn for several years now. One of his other passions is software carpentry. He's also a software carpentry instructor. In the past, Andreas has worked at the NYU Center for Data Science, and he's also been a machine learning scientist at Amazon. In this episode, I'm going to go through um, a lot with Andreas. We're going to go through his childhood, uh, what he studied in school, and how he became a data scientist. We're going to go through advice that he has for would-be data scientists. We're going to go through advice for current data scientists. We're going to go through his work on open tools for machine learning. We're going to cover his predictions for deep learning and where it's going in the next five years. We're also going to be covering um, his data science pet peeves, which is pretty interesting. Um, there's actually a, quite a lot in this episode, so um, I'm excited for you to hear it. And if you have any feedback, let me know. As always, thank you for listening. Let's get started. Hi, Andreas. Uh, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, happy to have you here today. Um, well, let's, let's start from the beginning. Um, you moved from the States two years ago, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I got to New York um, starting at NYU two years ago. Before that, I was working at Amazon in Berlin, but sort of, I got a free call offer at NYU, so I moved here to the States. Okay. Tell me about growing up in Germany. Uh, what were your dreams as a kid? So I think like I always wanted to be kind of a researcher and I was always uh, drawn to sort of computer science things and uh, like physical science, math, this kind of stuff. Like when I was in high school, I think actually we had to write like an essay of what you want to do when you're uh, grown up. And I think I said, I uh, want to be a computer science researcher at MIT. <laughs> wow, that's very specific. Kind of, yeah. But it was like, I want to do technology stuff, basically. Uh, so how old were you at the time when you when you wrote that essay? Do you remember? Maybe like 13, 14, something like that. Wow. When I was 13 or 14, and I, all I could think about was like baseball and basketball. That's so specific. I didn't even know about any type of college when I was growing up. And you knew about MIT all the way across the ocean. And you were like determined to go. Yeah, more or less determined. I mean, but... Uh... Yeah, I was always a like nerdy science kid, so. <laughs> well, um, when did you start programming and what was your first language? How did you get into programming? So I think it was around that time, like 13, 14 or something like that. Um, so the first thing I learned was uh, the batch processing for like the Windows or the, probably like the DOS shell. I, I think that kind of counts as a programming language. 
After that, I did uh, Pascal in, in school and Delphi. And then I moved to C++ at some point. Very cool. Um, so you, you started programming in high school, but you have a really strong math background. And when you went to college, you did not go to MIT. Where did, <laughs> where did you go? Uh, can, you, can you walk me through that um, academic story? Sure. So, I mean, I went to uh, school in Germany. I went to the University of Bonn, which um, I went to the math program there. It's actually like, it's a pretty well-known, pretty good math program. And I did uh, what was called a diploma, which is like a more or less equivalent to a master. And I focused on pure math. I did mostly algebra. I did some like logic and set theory, but a lot of very, uh, very abstract stuff that doesn't have a lot of like direct applications. I was very proud that I'd, in my, uh, what would be graduate studies here, I didn't have anything to do with any numbers at all. <laughs> and uh, there was no analysis or anything like that in there. And uh, it might've been a bit helpful for me now to have some more of that, but I did some linear algebra and that's pretty helpful now too. <laughs> So how long how long were you in school from from what age to what age? I guess from like I just from around my 18th birthday until my 23rd. That sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. And during the end of that, um, that's kind of when you got into more of the abstract math, or was that after? No, no, that was like um, so. The first two years are sort of what's more or less like a bachelor. I mean, okay, everything changed since I studied in Germany, but uh, so the first two years are pretty set and are more or less like a bachelor. And I did like analysis and linear algebra, and then um, the three years after that, yeah, the three years after that, I did all the like very pure algebra. Algebraic geometry is actually what my thesis is about. Hmm. So you, you went from super strong math background to computer vision. How, how, how did you make that jump? Tell me the story of how you got into computer vision. Yeah, so after I um, graduated from my, my math program, I took a little break and went to Australia for a bit. And then at some point, and I was thinking about what do I want to do next? And there's like a... a sort of a tech news website in Germany, maybe a little bit like uh, Wired in the US, that's called Heise, and they're always reporting on uh, what's going on in the tech world. And I saw one thing in the city where it's from, Bonn, there's a group at the university that always do a lot of robot stuff. In particular, they used to win the robot soccer championship every year. And so they have these humanoid robots uh, that were like, I don't know, more or less toddler size that play soccer against each other. And I thought it was super cool. And I thought like, wow, robots. I mean, who doesn't like robots? And, uh, and Every, it was I in a town. I love robots. <laughs> everybody loves robots, right? Yep. And um, so, and it was in a town where I was studying before it. So that's where all my friends were. It's where my partner was. And so um, I went back there and I went to the professor and asked like, all right, so um, I like robots. I want to do stuff with robots. And uh, he basically, he saw my background and he said, well, at the robots, you have to do all the soldering and they break all the stuff and you have to change the batteries. And that's not a lot of fun for someone like with a more theoretical background like you do. You should um, think more about the algorithms. So why don't you want work on computer vision problems? And so that's basically how I get started on the computer vision. So you met this robot master from the German robot World Cup of Soccer. 
and this robot master told you to go into computer vision. <laughs> yeah, actually, he told me to do uh, deep learning. That was in 2007 or something. Wow. So actually, he, he's been doing deep learning for a very long time. At that point, I was not really convinced of this. Uh, turns out he was right in, the, in hindsight. Um, but that was like way before people got back into like, I mean, now deep learning is super popular. I did it before it was popular and I was not very successful. Wow, he had a he had a lot of insight into I guess future trends. Um, was he your mentor during your PhD when you studied computer vision or while you pursued it? Um, sort of. I mean, he was mostly working on the robotic stuff, and I was mostly on my own in the computer vision. And so, um, I mean, I read all of the literature. So in the in German, the PhD program is basically, there's no courses or anything like that. You're more or less on your own and you have an advisor. But he wasn't really working on the recent computer vision stuff. And so I basically uh, did the research by myself. Wow, that's amazing. And in, in doing some of that research, um, did you did you have to play detective and reach out to people all around the world? <laughs> Like ask ask them about their research and like how how is that? That's that's impressive to kind of have this self guided PhD. I mean, I uh, I mean, I read a lot of papers basically, and I went to a bunch of conferences and uh, talked with people at conferences, and that definitely helped and gave me some perspective. Hmm. Well, um, after after getting your PhD in computer vision. What was the, well, I guess maybe it was before this, um, what was the first open source project that you contributed to? So, I mean, it was more or less during my PhD in computer vision. We worked on a library um, for deep learning on uh, uh, computer graph, on, uh, sorry. We worked on a library for deep learning on GPUs that was sort of before Theano and TensorFlow and everything. Or maybe like about at the same time as Ciano got uh, created, and so we had a C plus plus CUDA library that we developed in our lab that we open sourced. That was probably the first project. But so me and my my colleague at the time, Hannes Schulz, we created that. Um, and at the same time, I sort of started uh, to contribute a little bit to Scikit-Learn. So that was more or less my first open source um, experience. Like I was kind of fascinated with open source stuff ever since I learned how to program, and I always had a dream of like contributing to the kernel or something like that, but I was never good enough. But in the data science uh, regime, and like so I could learn a certain Python, and it's much easier, and I could get into it relatively easily. Well, how did how did you get started with Scikit-Learn? So I used it in my computer vision research a bit. So I looked through the different machine learning libraries in Python. So because my lab was doing Python, I was doing Python. And so um, I looked through the libraries and that seems the one that seems to be the most easy to use. And so I started using it. And then I started adding like some uh, things. There was like the kernel approximation that I wanted to add because I thought it was cool. And um, then while I was working on this, they did a sprint at uh, NIPS in Granada in Spain. Uh, this, NIPS is like uh, one of the two main uh, machine learning conferences in the world and was not that far. And because I was relatively on my own, it was kind of important for me to uh, go to conference to connect with people. 
And so basically, uh, I asked the Cycle Learn people, uh, hey, do you have funding to fly me to uh, NIPS uh, to come to the sprint? Hmm. And uh, so, oh, I'm sorry, give me one second. Oh, it's okay. All right. This is episode one, and I might leave that in just for authenticity's sake. <laughs> <laughs> like someone asking if I have garbage. <laughs> and I don't think they were asking about my code. Are you, but, are, uh, you at, are you at NYU right now? Yeah, I'm at NYU as my oh, office. Gotcha. It's an, um, okay, back to scikit-learn. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So basically, I mean, so on the mailing list, I said, yeah, we have some funds for people to come to the sprint. And then I asked, so, hey, can I maybe also come to the sprint? Because if they fly me there, then I could convince my professor to pay for a NIPS ticket and I can go to the conference. And I also can work with the scikit-learn people, which are also all amazing because they created this awesome package. And so basically, I, so they said yes to my surprise somewhat. And um, I uh, then we flew to NIPS. We had an awesome conference. After the conference, there was the sprints. And so Sprint is basically we sat together for like two or three days somewhere at the university uh, hacking on the code with like maybe 10, 20 people. It was one of the bigger sprints. And like all the core developers were there. It was awesome. But the person that was doing the a lot of the maintenance work and the releases at the time, uh, Fabian Pertagosa, he was an uh, undergrad student of Gilva Rocco, who was the guy who like led the project for most of the time, I would say, right. or still leading the project. And, um, but he just finished his bachelor. And so he, uh, so his contract ended and he would not do this work anymore. So they needed a new person to do all the annoying maintenance and release work. And they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, because that meant that I was like, really like involved in the project and uh, I had some responsibility and I could do stuff with the project and I was super excited about the project and I was like yeah so I was I was surprised that they asked me to do this but um, I was very happy and that's how I got like way more involved into the project. That's amazing. Um, did you already, you're a very passionate guy Andreas, did you already have such a passion for um, creating open source tools that lower the barrier um, of entry to machine learning back then, like I, I've heard you speak in the past before at other conferences, and I've I've read some of your work. So, when did you kind of like? Was it during your work on Scikit-Learn that you really came to that clear vision of um, creating these kinds of tools and making things more accessible? Yeah, it came during this work. I mean, it's mostly guided by seeing how much impact Scikit-Learn can have. And so, I mean, basically, I was always wanted to, like, make the world a better place in some way. And I saw that uh, in the position where I'm currently at and with my knowledge, this is really a place where I can have a huge impact. And so these tools, I've been told over and over, Scikit-Learn is very helpful for a lot of people. And so um, helping build this tool will enable a lot of research opportunities, a lot of, like, different products where people use this and uh, opens up a lot of possibilities. And in particular, people can uh, don't need to have like very large infrastructure to do this kind of data analysis. Can you, and so can, that's you really um, great. can you give some examples um, when you mentioned uh, products and use cases? Can you can you give some examples that maybe a, a more of a, a lay audience might um, uh, understand sure. better? So these are so two that are maybe like 
easy uh, to understand, but they're not currently, it's not currently used there anymore. It used to be that uh, Spotify radio uh, uses scikit-learn to um, predict sort of what songs should be in a radio channel um, associated with a particular artist. You know, you can do like click on artist and then say do artist radio and then it like plays all kind of similar songs. And that used to be driven by scikit-learn. I think now they have some deep learning stuff there. Um, another one that where I know it was used in production is in uh, in Bitly. They used it to find out sort of uh, Bitly are these link shorteners that are used on Twitter, and uh, they used to find out like what kind of traffic is it? Is it someone actually clicked on a link, or is it like a robot clicking on a link? And they use Scikit-Learn for that. There's also stuff that some credit card companies uh, used, or I think no, maybe actually banks and possibly also credit card companies that use scikit-learn to do some um, fraud analysis to see if a transaction on a credit card was fraudulent or not. Very cool. Um, to you, Andreas, what are what do you think are some of the biggest opportunities for creating um, new data science tools or um, improved iterations on current tools? So I'm... I mean, there's a lot of space to create awesome new stuff. I'm obviously more on the machine learning side of things. In machine learning, there's two directions that I find very interesting. One is create more automatic, more black box tools. Scikit-learn is like, there, there's this Python um, uh, guideline, explicit is better than implicit. So in Scikit-learn, you need to be very explicit about what you want to do with your data. That makes it slightly trickier for beginners to use. It would be good to have something that's way more like black boxy, member GitHub friendly, where you can just give it the data and then it does the everything for you. So more automation, and so that basically just just works. The other direction is make something that is more um, more open box, more understandable for humans, because a lot of the machine learning models are very complex and uh, not in a way that a human can actually introspect what's happening in there and why a decision is made. And in many applications, it's important to know why a decision was made, either to um, debug what is happening, why a mistake was made, or to, um, if there's like regulations, for example, in the financial sector, you can't do stuff um, that you can't explain to the, uh, uh, to the legislators. Um, then there are things about discrimination, uh, because the data is often very biased. Um, like the biases in society are usually reflected in data. And but we, if we make predictions, we don't want to reflect these biases. So for example, um, you should not give a person a, not a credit card because of their ethnicity. That's, that's illegal. <laughs> and uh, so you need to hmm? yeah. I said absolutely. And, and, it, and it should be. But if you, if you do something just based on the data, because the data exhibits biases, this will be there. And so you need to inspect your model to be able to say this doesn't happen. So there's these two ends, like make it more understandable for humans, but also make it more automatic. This is in the machine learning range. Hmm. Outside of the machine learning, I think there's um, like visualization, there's a lot to do, particularly in Python. There's currently like a bunch of competing libraries to do visualization. In R, there's uh, ggplot, which is sort of the one solution. In Python, everything is sort of built on matplotlib, but it's not that great currently for data scientists and we could improve there. 
and also have more like high-level visualization tools like uh, Tableau, for example, which is a commercial product that does like connecting data sources and visualizing them. And there's nothing like that in the open source space. I've been reading recently about um, Altair. Uh, I think it's Brian Granger's pro project. Um, what's your favorite um, visualization tool in Python currently? So. Unfortunately, I missed uh, Brian's keynote on Altair at uh, SciPy, but I actually still have to watch it. That's a good reminder. Thanks. Um, <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> but uh, th this is like a very early stages, so I'm not sure if this is like what you should be using now. Mm. I'm currently using Matplotlib, and uh, so actually, but so my experience is so one of my biggest projects recently was uh, writing a book on Scikit-Learn, and it has much more lines of Matplotlib code than it has of scikit-learn code. And that shows goes to show that sort of to to make data science visualizations with Matplotlib requires a lot of code. And that's yeah, that's not uh, necessarily ideal. And so it would be good to have more stuff that's more tailored to data science uh, scientists. There's uh, Seaborn, which kind of tries to do this. It's built on top of Matplotlib and has some functionality, but I'm not sure if, it, like, if it's entirely the right thing to do. Awesome. Well, um, what are you working on right now, Andreas? Yeah, so the one thing I just mentioned is the, the book. So I wrote this book, um, Introduction to Machine Learning with Python, with uh, O'Reilly, together with uh, Sarah Guido and I hope I pronounced her last name correctly. Um, and so it's basically, it's an introduction to machine learning without any of the math. It's mostly around scikit-learn and Python, and so how can you do uh, practical machine learning? There's a lot of machine learning books out there, but usually they require some knowledge of probability theory or linear algebra. And basically I wanted to write a book that is more for programmers so that they can just do the stuff. And it's sort of a bit of a handbook and introduction to scikit-learn too. This sounds like the perfect book for me. <laughs> I might have to ask you for a copy. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of good books that have uh, the math in it. And so if you want, so I would probably recommend, like, read the, uh, if, if you're more of a programmer, read my book. And if you're hooked, then read the books that also have some math in it so you get better understanding. But I think I try to have, like, a, sort of low barrier of entry to get into, like, get a better feeling of the machine learning. Gotcha. Um, what, was, what was the title of the book again? Uh, Introduction to Machine Learning in Python. So actually, I'm working a little bit on this more automated machine learning, more black box stuff. So that, um, yeah, basically, that you can just have a function that says classify, and it finds the right models to use. That's the right preprocessing. And um, Basically, you don't have to choose which of the models in scikit-learn you want to use. You don't have to think about what kind of preprocessing do you need. It'll just be automatic. And uh, so this will take, obviously, like it will be a bit slower because it has to do some a bunch of searches, but uh, it can be hands-off. And so the like data scientists or machine learning expert can concentrate on the more interesting stuff, like looking at the data and doesn't have to try out all the different kind of models. Hmm. What, well. What is your advice to the would-be data scientist um, who doesn't yet have a degree in math or stats? Um, you mean aside from reading my book? <laughs> um, yes, aside from reading your book. <laughs> it depends a lot on it. 
A, what it means to be a data scientist for them, and B, what kind of uh, position they want to get into. There's a lot of very different uh, roles inside data science. So I'm very like on the machine learning side, but that's not all there is data science. There's also like people that create dashboards, people that do just sort of counting of stuff and you can have very good business insights and like, for example, uh, querying uh, giant databases with Spark and just see like, um, basically counting how often things happen or how often things correlate. And this can you, uh, give you a great insight to what's happening or yet, or just doing some kind of data visualization, interactive visualization, there's a lot of that. And uh, for for these, you don't really need a lot of math or probabilistic uh, or like yeah, statistics or any of these. If you're interested in doing more of the machine learning side, then yeah, I think actually my book would be like a good entry point, but at some point you would need to learn about probability theory and some linear algebra. There's these uh, books, um, for example, I think ThinkStats and ThinkBase are, wait, do I have them lying around here? I don't know, uh, by Alan Downey. They're sort of layman introductions to some of the probability theory concepts that are very important if you want to get into more um, reasoning. And uh, if you, once you have this sort of background, there's a book called Elements of Statistical Learning, which is amazing to learn machine learning and the authors like have a PDF on their website. Excellent, that's all, thank you. Um, I think you brought up something interesting is uh, you kind of say like, what it, how do you define data science or what it, what is data science to you? And um, you yourself call yourself a uh, machine learning researcher not a data scientist or maybe maybe a machine learning practitioner now. Um, what's the difference between data science and machine learning and how do you, how do you define data science? So I don't define data science uh, because it's way too hard. We actually have here at NYU, we have some rich researchers that study what data science is and it's very unclear and different people mean very different things by it. Uh, but if you include it in your job description, uh, you get a good boost for your salary. So, <laughs> um, one of the reasons why I don't call myself a data scientist is because I feel it's somewhat vague and slightly meaningless at this point because it doesn't really tell you a lot about what a person is doing. It also seems to imply much more being on a practical side, which is interesting because it has science in its name. I don't remember what conference, but there was a conference that had like a, a theory track and a data science track. And the data science track was the applications. So data science is not a science. It's sort of, it's the application of whatever it is. Um, and that's kind of weird because it has science in it. But um, for, for many people, it just means any data-driven reasoning, I think. Hmm. That's like super broad. That's very broad, yeah. It's... Uh... And there's so many terms within data science, like so many different titles and um, things thrown around. So, um, well, I don't think we got any closer, but I don't think anybody is ever going to truly solve uh, the problem of what is a data scientist. <laughs> Not... Yeah, it's probably also something that's going to evolve over time. I think so. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what's your advice to uh, data scientists out in the world? Um, 
in terms of uh, what can they do in their daily lives to improve their skill as a <laughs> data scientist. Um, I know that's still broad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it totally depends on what they want to do and what their goals are. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, one thing is always like learn good tools, learn better tools. There's people that are, are data scientists or data analysts that do all their work in Excel. And I feel that's uh, quite limiting. So if you really want to be good at doing data analytics, I think you need to have like a very open like programming language in which you can do queries and you, in which you can really munch your data. And I think the sort of uh, standard choices for these are Python and R. Hmm. And you should really sort of, if you want to be, if you want to analyze data, you should get Fluent and Python and R and the libraries that you need in the in the stack to um, uh, to do data analysis. So like stats stuff, um, visualization stuff, data managing stuff, um, machine learning stuff if you want that. And uh, so because this gives you so much more flexibility in interacting with your data. Hmm. Okay, I only have I only have time to to learn one of those languages in the next month, let's say. Um, what do I choose and why? Python or R? So I don't know a lot of R. I'm obviously a Python guy. Hmm. And so I think it depends on what's important to you. If probabilistic models and inference is important to you. So if you want to know why do things happen, and if you want like uh, confidence intervals on the coefficients of your linear models, then use R. If you're more interested in um, like predictive analytics and possibly also more scalability than and integration into like web services and stuff than Python. So R is very good on the stats side and on the like stats visualization side. Um, it's less good in being a general purpose programming language. It's really like it's a stats language. Mm -hmm. There's um, they have nice interactive tools and stuff, but your average backend engineer will not know the language. So if you want to integrate the larger system, like you can write production code in Python. You can't really write it production code in R. That makes sense. Um, I have a friend, uh, my buddy Josh Bernard. He was used to be a straight up R guy, and now. Um, I, I program in Python and I've never tried R. And Josh always says, um, if you want to be a programmer and you want to learn how to program like a programmer, uh, go for Python. And, and he used to be an R guy. So for, <laughs> that's that was his two cents. Because <laughs> he said oftentimes he just felt like he was just uh, plugging in things to functions in R and just kind of seeing how they reacted. And um, I don't know, what are your thoughts on uh, from a pure programming point of view? Julia, Julia. I, I, no, I don't think anyone would argue that R is a better language than Python. I think R people accept that their language is not that great. Mm. The strength of R is an ecosystem of a lot of very powerful tools written by a lot of very smart people. That makes sense. Like uh, ggplot or like a thousand stats packages. Mm. And that's really where the strength comes from. And not all of these functionality is available in Python. But in terms of like programming language, I would definitely, uh, I think, prefer Python. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, tell me a little bit about your software carpentry work at NYU. Uh, sure. So 
I don't know if you like people are familiar with the Software Carpentry Organization. This is basically uh, it's a nonprofit that teaches courses for scientists to get better at programming. Scientists are really bad at programming often, and they have really bad programming practices, like not using using version control, not documenting their code, not writing unit tests, uh, and then publishing in Science or Nature. And it's uh, that's really tricky because uh, that means a lot of well, a lot of the stuff has bugs, and a lot of the stuff cannot be easily reproduced. Because if you look at your own code, if you write like very long spaghetti code and you don't touch it for a year because you write on a work on a different project, then someone asks you to run it again, you probably completely forget how it worked, hmm. and there's no way to sort of recover the results you had before. So software uh, engineering practices are very important for making science more reliable and more reproducible. And so the software carpentry, well, I mean, one of the goals is to g give scientists like, better software uh, development practices. But I mean, also another goal is to um, actually give scientists the programming tools to move them away from doing stuff in an Excel spreadsheet and allow them to use R or Python to do their uh, data analysis. And so uh, how software carpentry works is it does like uh, an institute can ho can host these workshops and then some volunteers are uh, flown in or like go there and do a multiple day long workshop where there are scientists of like all different levels and they learn things like basic Python, basic R, um, Bash, SQL, um, what else, uh, Git and GitHub and sort of things that are essential to sort of building software. And so, um, yeah, I've been become a trainer in software carpentry relatively recently, but even before that, I did some training at, uh, at NYU on Git and GitHub, because I feel like a lot of the scientists already kind of know how to program, but their practices are really bad. So like putting your stuff into version control is I think the, the first step like everybody should use version control all the time. And so this is sort of the first thing I want to uh, push onto the scientists. Sure. In particular for collaboration, it's very important. I mean, it, both for collaboration and for like tracking stuff and for making it reproducible. In terms of, um, do you feel like you're making uh, headway uh, across across the U United States in this, in this mission? Or is it, uh, is it this one org that's fighting this uphill battle or... Because reproducibility is um, a problem across all domains of science right now. Um, it's just, it's very tough. But um, with software, at least we have version control and we, we can do peer peer review and look at each other's code. Um, how, how's the progress going? Are we, are we making strides? So, I mean, peer review is another thing which is basically absent from academia, which is horrifying to me, by mm. the way. So, um, usually there's one PhD student or postdoc who writes all the code and no one else ever looks at it. And then it gets published in like some high profile journal. But I wouldn't say I'm making uh, any like headway. It's like there's a large community and many people see this as a problem. Actually, like one of the that's one of the reasons this institute I'm at NYU exists is because some foundations see this problem in the sciences uh, that they're bad at using like data and bad at building tools. And so um, 
yeah, there, there's a lot of people that are concerned about this, and the message gets out more and more. And I think also people like the White House is also sort of has some initiatives to try to make this better. It's um, there's a big problem in the incentives. Basically, scientists are not incentivized to um, make their to open up their code or their data or to make their uh, things reproducible. And um, so one one. And there's two ways to incentivize them more, basically. One is via the publishing, so that if conferences or journals uh, require you to um, publish your code or to make it reproducible or something like that, then scientists will have to do it. Mm -hmm. And the other is if the people that fund the research uh, require this. Actually, the NSF, which is like, I guess, the biggest funder of research in the US, the National Science Foundation, is um, they actually require that you have some data management plans and that you like publish your results openly in some sense. So this is a very, very good direction. And um, it's not super enforced, but I think we like the science community is moving in the right direction. Sure. And I know sometimes there, there are confidentiality, um, especially data confidentiality and um, I guess you could anonymize the data in certain situations, but um, still, who, who's enforcing it at the end? It's, it's, it's that organization you mentioned. What was the name of the organization again? Oh, and, sorry. NSF is oh, the, the National N Science Got Foundation. It. Oh, okay. This NSF. Is, this is uh, US. Uh, the US paying uh, for the research. It's the US funding agency that supports a lot of the major research. So people... Um, so they put out calls and say, um, some for some areas of research and people apply for grants. And so the NSF provides the money to do the research. And because they provide the money, they can sort of uh, specify what the people have to do. Got it. Got it. Now, speaking of um, problems, uh, do you have any data science pet peeves that just bug you? Um, maybe the term data science. <laughs> back so, to, back because, to that again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Other than that, I mean, it's often very hard to um, know what, if, if you see some chart that someone created, it's often very hard to know what they did. We mm -hmm. don't look at the code and usually people don't publish the code. So that's kind of a problem. And then there's... Um, Obviously, like um, general stats error that people make is the multiply hypothesis testing error. I don't know. There's, uh, if you notice XKCD comic, there's this uh, scientist that is like, we, we haven't found a correlation between X and between this and that hmm. with P, uh, P uh, smaller than 0 0.05. And we haven't found one with this and this. And we haven't found one with this and this. And oh, we have found with this. But sort of if you do, if you test many, many hypotheses, some of them will be significantly true and you need to adjust your uh, p-values, I mean, if you do this kind of statistics, mm -hmm. to reflect that you did multiple tests and people just don't do this. I mean, right. pe people that are statisticians know about this and they do this, but people that analyze their data, they just analyze the data and analyze the data and analyze the data and at some, and you can always come up with some story to explain the data. Right. But it doesn't mean that the story is actually true. Yeah, that's a big, that's a massive problem. It's a big one. Um, okay, uh, time to speculate. Uh, next five years, uh, what do you see in data science's future? 
in the next five years? Like, what are some big predictions that that you want to make? Five years is a long time, mm -hmm. but so we can narrow I think... it. We, we can narrow it down a little bit. Uh, like, let, maybe uh, in the next five years, what do you see uh, for the future of deep learning? Yeah, so I think deep learning will become even more pervasive in some areas and probably easier to use. In particular, like building more of these black box kind of models that people just feed in the data and we will see more domain specific models. For computer vision, there was like basically one person built a very good uh, computer vision model and now everybody else is just using this model uh, to extract features and then build their own applications on it. And basically every time you have enough data, you can use deep learning successfully. It's sort of what people have seen so far. That doesn't mean like the other thing, stuff will go away because in many applications, you actually don't have enough data. Mm -hmm. Another thing that probably will become more pervasive is more custom models. There's a thing called probabilistic programming or general like languages for graphical models where you can say, well, here's what I think how the process that I'm looking at works. Maybe this can be like user behavior on a website or like a physical process or like a biological process, whatever. And you have some, some story in your head of how you think things happen. And then you can build uh, with these tools, you can build more easily a custom probabilistic model that models this process. Then you can make inferences based on the data. So this probably also will, like in terms of technologies, this will also probably be used more often. I'm not sure in terms of like the programming technologies, what will happen. It seems that everybody went to Spark for a while. Mm -hmm. and people still do this for data analysis, but I don't think the machine learning in Spark has really taken off. And people still ask me how to make scikit-learn scalable. And I tell them that that's probably not the right idea. <laughs> um, what, what do you think is the right idea? Oh, so, so it depends. So A, often you don't need to use that much data. Sort of B, you can do a lot of stuff with scikit-learn uh, as long as the data fits into RAM or on a disk, you can do streaming stuff. And um, so scikit-learn actually can use this on very large data sets. But if you want to, something where the data doesn't fit on a single node or you want to process to something data parallel, as would be natural with Spark or Hadoop, where you have some chunk of the data on each of the nodes, then it's like, it's gonna, I feel it's silly to use scikit-learn for that. And I feel you should do something from the ground up like um, like MLlib did. Hmm. So I'm not sure, MLlib uh, seems to work. I don't know if many people use it, but that's maybe because I'm in a Python ecosystem and people have small data and they just use scikit-learn. Um, so I don't know how successful MLlib is. Um, maybe Spark is not entirely the right framework for doing machine learning because um, it has some communication overhead between the nodes that's not entirely necessary, but it's probably good enough, so. <laughs> um, I mean, Very cool. There's also, I mean, there was also, there's also the stuff from uh, H2O, mm -hmm. which, uh, or OX Data. Um, they built their own framework in Java. Um, but it's like, it's sort of open source, I think, but I'm not sure if it's got much adoption. And, uh, GraphLab slash Dato slash Turi people had also a solution. I'm not sure what's going to happen to that. Now they got bought by Apple. Hmm. Um, so I think the jury is still out what will happen with like scalable machine learning right. and whatever that means. 
Well, Andreas, it was a real pleasure. Um, we've got a few more minutes left, so I'm going to hit you with some rapid-fire questions. This is um, just just to get to know Andreas Mueller. Um, I kind of stole a lot of these questions from uh, Tim Ferriss, so <laughs> I just like the way he ends his interviews, and so we're going to try that in our first episode. Um, so, so let's hit these questions. Uh, what is the first book? What is the book that you give um, most often as a gift? I think it's either Kill Your Friends by uh, John Neven or uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by... I think it's Jared Diamond? Jared Diamond, yes. I know that because I have the same first name. <laughs> That's a great book also. I love that book. I haven't read Kill Your Friends, though. I'll have to, have to check that one out. What, what do you particularly love about that book? Uh, uh, this author is like... I, I, it's my maybe my favorite author now, but it's... It's just very in your face. Um, it's about uh, like the debauchery of a record industry uh, person. Wow, <laughs> that sounds interesting. I'll check it out. Um, when you hear the word successful, who is the first person that you think of and why? I actually, I don't know. Actually, there's no, there's no person that really comes to mind. Actually, I, don't, I have no idea what success means. So uh, <laughs> it's very like I talk with a lot of people in the startup world, and they have like some definition of success, but that's like I don't know. Money is not equal to success for me, so I have really no idea. It could be unrelated to money completely. They, yeah. Do you have your Do you have a definition for success? Your own personal definition? I mean, my own personal definition is like have as much impact to make as possible to make the world a better place in some sense. If I can do that, then I think I'm successful. Well, uh, related to the last question, who would, who would you, <laughs> maybe, maybe this, you don't have an answer to this one either. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, who would you like to emulate and why? No, I definitely want to be my, my own thing because like basically my career path is uh, sort of, very non-traditional and there's like very few people that have uh chosen this way maybe i'd like to i don't know if you know uh jake vanderplas i really like him a lot and maybe i'll try to, to emulate him a little bit uh he's like a another developer of scikit learn and he's like very good at educating and teaching and building community mm. um i mean actually yeah it's probably more of my some of my peers that i try to emulate I also love like just things that Stefan van der Waal do or Nathaniel Smith, and they're like I really look up to them. And so these are people from the Python community that I love. And like, uh, but there's no like, look at this great person uh, that did all the good things. Um, That's a great answer. I, I love that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Maybe uh, take a stats course or uh, do some functional analysis that would have been really good for me. That could could have written much better uh, machine learning papers if I did any of that. Hmm. But I think I did pretty well on, on in general. Um, and I mean, my career has been going different places so far, but I think I learned every, something everywhere. And so I don't really like regret any of the choices I've made. So 
what would the uh, what would the old you say to the new you? It's like, what? You're not doing proofs all day long. What happened to you? You sold out. <laughs> so, You're doing stuff with numbers and data and computers. What the hell? So you went from academia to to selling out. That's what the old you yeah. would say. Yeah, I mean, I was really like into pure pure math, and it's like doing something that involves actual numbers and actual real-world stuff might have been unthinkable for like the 20-year-old me. <laughs> were you just kind of against that at that age or just, just you were just so passionate about the pure math? Uh, it's like, I mean, it's kind of like a silly, uh, silly game that the mathematicians try to, uh, like the, where the, the pure people uh, slightly think that they're better than the other ones and the other way around. It's like, it's not really serious, but it's kind of fun. Hmm. Um, no, I was just really passionate about uh, the pure math and I really liked it a lot. And it was much more fun to me than all the um, like more applied things. I mean, in particular, like machine learning, like all the things that so the, in machine learning, the theory doesn't really explain any of the things that work sufficiently well. Hmm. So from the theory, you can not really say much about the practice at all, which is pretty weird and or bad for science. So in math, I always know like sort of what's happening in pure math and what I'm doing right now. You, you have all these papers with all these nice proofs, and then you have the things that uh, work. And... They might be the same, but people publish them because they work and not because the proof works, kind of. And it's like, there's no way to know from the math behind the methods whether it's actually going to do anything in practice. That's crazy. Um, one of the faculty, um, of one of the data science faculty from Galvanize, his name's Isaac, kind of brought up the point of there's got to be this like old rift between... Um, the mathematicians and stats people, and then like they're on one team, and then on the other team is like the computer scientists and like machine learning. <laughs> and at some point, they they started getting along, but there was a time in history when they didn't. And I'm really curious to learn more about that story, and then maybe in another podcast, or I I probably need to do some independent research on it. But I find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, I guess it's. It probably also depends on the country because in Germany, I don't think math and stats stats are usually divided. Right. That's like a very U.S. thing, um, I think. But I don't. And usually, and often math is very close. Sorry, computer science often grew out of the math department, and uh, so maybe the the mathematicians didn't like it because it was too applied, and the computer scientists tried to like distinguish themselves from the mathematicians. I don't know, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, but so but computer science is like just so empirical. It's kind of weird to me. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, not computer machine learning. Did I say computer science? You did. Like, uh, I, I meant machine learning. Hmm. Like in in stuff about data structures and so on. Yeah, like there's at least there's quite a close between. Like you can think about amortized runtimes, and then they mean something. But if you look at the guarantees in machine learning, they don't have anything to do with the actual outcomes on actual data. Hmm. Well, Andreas, um, who else? Who else should I interview on the show? Uh, depends a lot on what you. Uh, so, what do you want to talk about? 
Yeah, I think this is this is episode one. So, yeah, I think part of the purpose of this podcast is to uh, expose the human side of data scientists and just kind of get their story. Um, another reason for doing the show is to uh, um, help would-be data scientists um, find their path and get inspiration um, from the top leaders in the field. And another purpose of this is to um, help other people who work with data scientists, so whether it be product managers or data managers or um, a head of an engineering team who needs to go and talk to his data science team, you know, to, to allow them to understand data science and machine learning and these topics um, in much greater depth. So the purpose of this cast is really educational in nature and also entertaining and inspirational. So, um, you know, I think you were a great first interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, so for the people that are more on the business side, the, definitely the person to talk to is uh, Foster Provost, who is a colleague of mine at NYU. He wrote together with Tom Foster this book, Data Science for Business, mm. which if you hadn't read it, you must read it. And uh, so this is all about people that need to make decisions based on data, but are not necessarily like the data scientists themselves. And it, it's amazing. It's uh, sli slightly the opposite of target audience from my book, which is all about the hands-on engineering. Mm -hmm. Then, um, I mean, if you want to talk more about like methods and and or career paths, uh, yeah, Jake Vanderplas that I mentioned before is a great person to talk to. Um, John Miles it is uh, also always fun. fun. He, he's one of the uh, creators of the Julia language, and he's also an amazing stats guy and does R, and he wrote the book Machine Learning for Hackers, if you've seen that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, about like a more programmatic approach and more like an example-driven approach to machine learning with R. Um, he's, he's at Facebook now doing uh, multiple machine learning things there. Um, I don't know. There's like... Oh, you can talk to Hillary Mason, maybe. Uh, she, she's, uh, I mean, one of the leaders in like bridging the gap between industry and academia and science in the data science field. She's from New York and does a lot of great work in data science research. There are so many people to talk to. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, this is great. Thank you. It's a great list. I, I I'm scribbling down them all the names furiously. I'll. I've I've heard of uh, John Miles White, Hillary Mason. Um, I I was I wasn't familiar with uh, with Jake until you mentioned him earlier in the interview. But seems like a great guy. You should listen to his SciPy twenty fifteen keynote, maybe. Okay. And all his other talks, but. Uh... Great. Well, Andreas, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me again. It was great.